What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. 9-11. Um, probably the most transformational time of any of our lives. We all know where we were when we news or saw it on the television. But then the aftermath of 9-11, things got very murky and very scary very quickly. The Bush-Cheney administration set up black sites around the world to interrogate and essentially torture uh suspects that they believed were key in the war on terror oftentimes scooping up people and sending them to guantanamo bay when they were sold to the united states by warlords so sometimes these people weren't even uh suspected of doing anything they were they were given by scrupulous people who wanted to make money and then shipped off to gitmo where they were tortured for years and years some of them and there are still inmates there and there are some people who probably should wear a cape uh, on this planet because of the way that they have handled their role in trying to represent inmates uh, from Guantanamo and other torture victims, drone strike victims, human rights attorneys who have taken it upon themselves to try to uh, manage the harm that's been done from policies like this. And we have one of those people here today. She is a human rights attorney and she does represent many of the victims from that era that still continues to this day and her name is alka alka how are you i'm fine thank you thank you for having me no problem thank you very much you're like i said i think people like you i know you're probably hum too humble to, to agree with me when i say that you should wear a cape but when i when i say that i think what i'm saying is really is that it must be a gargantuan task to take on the case the cases of certain individuals who not only have been, um, you know, living a nightmare for it, some some of them for twenty for about twenty years, but also just that the weight of who you're fighting against, because it's not just the justice system; it's basically the the ecosystem of the entire U.S. government, isn't it? It really is. Um, I often say that you know I I got into human rights and humanitarian law because you know that was my interest. That's what I wanted to do. I never thought I would be litigating against my own government. You know, that's really never what I thought I'd be I'd be doing. And yet here we are. Um, yes, you know, look, there are there are a lot of people who do who do this work, who do really, really important, difficult work. Um, and you know, I, I I absolutely rely on on all of them. But um, it is hard in part because of what the my government did to these men. Um, they are damaged. You know, we're here 21 years um, after the start of Gitmo, nearly 22 years post September 11th, um, and the the damage is so evident to people, institutions, the government, our society that um, it feels like you know the floor is coming out beneath you all the time. Yeah, it, it's it's one of your one of the clients that you represent um, is Amara Albaluchi. And he was a person that was thought to be like a courier 
in uh, for Osama bin Laden. He was uh, a part of the same tribe, allegedly, I think, of uh, uh, Shahid. Uh, um, sorry. That's right. Sorry. I had a note in front of me and then I just yeah, closed the window no. for some reason. Um, and it wasn't really, sometimes it's not necessarily about what they're accused of, but it's in the manner in which they become interrogated after they're captured that becomes a little bit almost more important. I, I don't know about the guilt or innocence of this man, and I'm, I'm, I don't expect you to, to, to say that he's guilty of anything, but really what happens to the state when they take someone and place them, guilty or not, in a black site and then torture them what are we looking at here as far as the your, your role in the justice system? Like, how does that work when, when you're dealing with something like that? Is there a part of you that's like, look, guilt or innocence is almost irrelevant when you're dealing with the torture of somebody? Uh, absolutely. I mean, what we did, you know, the, the facts are there. And the problem is that the U.S. government has never wanted to admit that. And when I say the U.S. government, I mean all four administrations, right? I'm, it's not Democrat or Republican. It's one of the most bipartisan issues there there is out there. No one wants to admit that post-September 11th, the government made a very conscious decision that we were not, in fact, going to prosecute these people. We were going to hold them abroad. And the rationale was they have intelligence on future attacks. They We found out very, very quickly that was not the case. But we continued to hold them these secret prisons abroad because from the get-go, we were torturing them. And the minute you start doing that, you've got something to cover up. Then you keep doing it and it just builds on itself. And as soon as you bring torture into the equation, there's no question of guilt or innocence. You can't even really ascertain guilt or innocence unless you've got a mountain of, you know, completely unrelated evidence because the statements they're making are so tainted and so unreliable, which is what happened to Omar. And I will say the issue about him being a courier is completely false. Um, that is something that was drummed up by the CIA when they gave um, some false, some classified information to the makers of Zero Dark Thirty to make a character based on Omar to kind of poison the well. Yeah, that was an interesting movie. Um, it, it was like torture porn. Yeah, that's exactly it was, what it was. It, it was strange to watch a Hollywood production that focused on that for a couple of reasons. One, and I didn't think we'd talk about this, and, and we'll, we'll get off it in a second, but one of the things that I remember when I was watching it, first of all, it was a good movie. It was well-made. But it was weird to see liberal Hollywood become neoconservative in their content. Did you find that as well? Yeah, I, I was really, you know, these, I'm sure these individuals are not pro-torture. I'm not out here saying I think Jessica Chastain is pro-torture or anything like that. But there was a certain story that the CIA wanted told, which is why they collaborated with the filmmakers, right? And then they knew the Senate report was coming out. They knew it wasn't going to make them look good. So more people are going to go see a Hollywood movie than read a 3,000-page Senate report. And the CIA is smart. They knew that. So the fact that there was no kind of um, in, in, <laughs> interrogation, for lack of a better word, by the filmmakers, by the actors and actresses in this film about what message they were sending through this film really floors me still to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a weird one. Um, I'm going to play a clip now and then get your thoughts on the back of this clip. Just give me one sec. This is the one where he talks about doctors it's actually called doctors of the dark sites and this is the one where he starts off talking about 
how all of the techniques were used together. It was never just one. It was always multiple techniques being used together. Um, and so he describes all of the techniques. I, was, uh, I wasn't just being suspended to the ceiling. I was naked, starved, dehydrated, cold, hooded, verbally threatened, in pain from the beating, um, and water drowning as my head smashed by hitting the, against the wall for dozens and dozens of times. My ears were exploding from the blasting harsh music which is still stuck in my head. Sleep deprived for weeks. I was shaking and trembling. My legs barely supported my weight as my hands were pulled even higher above my head after I complained that the handcuffs were so tight as if cutting through my wrist. Then my legs start to uh, swell as a result of long suspension started screaming. And then the doctor comes. The doctor comes. The doctor came with a tape measure, wrapped it around my leg, and to my utmost shock, the doctor told the interrogators, no, that wasn't enough. My leg should get more swollen. I'm going to stop it there just because I think that's, that's enough. That is, like, frightening. It was frightening, and honestly, when Amar wrote that, it was, I believed him. But it was difficult, right? It was difficult to believe that a doctor walked into the room when all of this is happening to him. Um, and I knew by this point, by the time he wrote this, that like these things had happened to him. But it, it's so hard to picture in your head until we received a report, an internal report that the CIA had written about Amar's uh, interrogations at the black sites. Um, and they had written it after he made allegations of torture once he got to Gitmo. It was an internal report. It was supposed to re remain classified. We got it declassified. We got it released to the public. It's called the OIG. It's an OIG, the uh, Office of Inspector General wrote this report. And they say, they talk about the doctors who were involved in Amar's interrogations. They talk about how the doctors said, you know, he'll be just fine. He's got no history of mental illness. And so, you know, all this stuff we're going to do to him, he's, he's resilient. He'll be, he'll be just fine. He'll live through it. Um, yeah. And they actually conclude that he was reasonably, he it was reasonable to think that he was tortured. I would love to see the chart that the doctor went, the swelling, if it was a little bit more, like, I mean, how do you even have a chart that would, you know, that would, that, that would ascertain something like that. And I don't know if this, if I'm just sort of uh, reaching here, but he continued as my hand. the handwriting, I'm no handwriting expert, but, uh, but I remember writing, I'm a writer and I remember writing when I was upset, writing poetry when I'm like sad or whatever. And that just looks like, I don't, I, I'm again, I, I don't know if it's flaky and weird, but the handwriting looks like a person who's really troubled and impacted and has experienced trauma incredibly traumatized um and his handwriting you know it varies like all of us does but his handwriting when he writes about his torture is is like that is that sort of spidery handwriting because it and you can as you watch him write you see him relive it um this is a yeah. man who had brain damage as a result of his cia torture he's now dealing with a spinal tumor as well so you know you can you can watch him relive that trauma has the, I mean, okay, so the Bush administration changed the game after 9-11 in a lot of ways um, and, and instituted torture. They called it interrogation techniques and coercive methods and all that. Has, did it change under Obama? I, I mean, I did, because I, I know Obama had a different um, avenue that, that 
also spoke to the injustices that happen when the American military goes on an adventure overseas. I think he was uh, using drones in seven to nine or something different countries at the same time. And and drone strike victims, they're one of the most um, underrepresented group, I think, in the world. Because if we can ever imagine in North America, I talked to Noam Chomsky on this show about drone strikes. And I asked him, I'm like, well, what would America do if China just started blowing people up at weddings? And he was like, it would be considered the worst terrorist attack ever. And I was like, so does do government officials ever have meetings where they talk about that kind of hypocrisy or does that just go completely unspoken? I don't think they talk about the hypocrisy, to be perfectly honest. I think that Obama took uh, what was at the time a visible problem in you know, Guantanamo. And to be clear, the drone program existed before uh, Obama came into power, but he really leveraged it, right? Um, and just translated the general idea behind Guantanamo and the black sites, which is we round up all the brown Muslim men who nobody cares about in the United States, right? Nobody knows anyone from anyone else. And we just kill them where they stand. Um, and that way, we don't have to bother about human rights groups coming after us because even if they find out about it, what are they going to do? Right. They're not there's not like a focal point for it. Um, we don't have to care about their families or anyone else because they're they're basically anonymous. I mean, people just don't people in the United States don't really care about Yemenis or Pakistanis. And uh, to be perfectly honest, many can't even tell the difference. Mm -hmm. So it was it was expedience. Um. You talked about, uh, I saw in another interview, you talked about uh, the three impacts on torture victims. Uh, there's obviously the physical, um, but there's also the psychological impact, and those are the scars that you can't see, the trauma that you just spoke about, sounds and smell, or even seeing your torturer again. Mm -hmm. And then you said that there's something uh, called psychological aspect being separated from family and isolated. What is the difference between those two psychological aspects of being a, a tortured individual? So the when you talk about the psychological trauma from from torture, that's the sort of fear based reactions that you have, right? The fear of you hear gravel crunching and it's someone coming to beat you. You see a shackle point on the ceiling and that's how you were suspended by your wrists, right? It's, it's those kinds of things that send you into flashbacks and cold sweats and remove your ability to sleep and stuff like that. The separation from family is actually much more insidious. It's a form of disappearance in a way. Um, and it's a long-term thing. And so it is another aspect of torture because it's not just fear for yourself and kind of feeling, feeling harmed yourself, but it is that unknown of what is happening to your family. How is your family coping with it, right? Like anyone we love, we worry about, you know, what is going to happen to my kids, what's happening to my parents, what's happening to my brothers and sisters, especially if you're from a part of the world that is perhaps not entirely stable. And you don't know how much they know about what where you are, what's happening to you. You don't know if they're alive or dead in some cases, if they're being threatened because of who you are or in whose custody you are. So it's a whole other aspect of torture that has nothing to do with what was done personally to you. Mm -hmm. Is there, you said in another interview, I believe that we've known that torture doesn't work for like thousands of years. Yes. yes. What is the history? 
you can i mean i'm not sure how, how well versed you are in the history of torture i assume better than i am i'm pretty lay i'm not an academic or anything like that but or a historian is there you know can you run me through sort of like um the history of torture and how we know it doesn't work yeah i mean look you know there were books written i have i have one actually sitting right here let me just pull it out this is this is the Cascio Criminalis. It's a book on witch trials. It was written in the 14, in, excuse me, it was written in 1631, okay? Mm -hmm. And I have an earlier example for you. It's written in 1631 by a Jesuit priest who was um, writing about witch, not just witch trials, but witch uh, torture in Germany. And he starts this book by saying, by going through like a series of logical, he believes in witches. He believes witchcraft exists, right? Oh, wow. okay. But he, knowing that witchcraft exists, establishing as a fact that witchcraft exists, he still comes to the conclusion that torture does not work. Torturing these people is not going to get you the truth. They're going to say whatever they need to say, and you're not going to get to the real crux of the matter, which is, are they a witch or not? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's 1631. Under Elizabeth I in England, they had to issue torture warrants because at the time they knew that torture wasn't going to get you a real confession, but it would get you a confession. And so she would issue these warrants, special permission to use torture on political enemies from whom she wow. needed a confession. It didn't need to be true. It just needed to be politically expedient. So that was the that was the logic going on in the 1500s. Sometimes it makes me like when you tell that story, it makes me and and and, and I can relate it to I can draw a parallel to the Bush administration in a sense because at the at the time I remember having a feeling like do they just want suspects to think that they torture so that they'll confess before anything happens? Like that's like I was trying to figure out because I knew that they were smart enough to know that torture wasn't going to get them results because we had already heard that before. So was that was it a psyop almost uh, before it became an actual reality or so in a way, but they're not that they're not quite that smart, right? Oh, <laughs> so, I'm smarter than the U.S. government. Yes. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the doctors who we actually had two of the doctors who were in charge of the program initially come and testify and they went through in some really, 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 you know, intimate detail how they were only supposed to use physical measures, torture measures, um, for a short period of time, just enough to get that psychological trigger, right, of compliance. So that all they had, in fact, James Mitchell told a story about how all he, he wanted to get to a point where there was a technique called walling, where you take a towel, wrap it around the detainee's neck and bang their head against the wall. That's how Amar got brain damage, um, mm. because they used him as a as a test subject to get their certification in using that technique. And so for hours wow. it happened to him. But Mitchell said the way in which they used that technique was they wanted to get to a point where they'd only have to do that physically a couple of times. After that, if they felt like the men were withholding any information, all they would have to do is pull out the towel and put it on the table. Yeah. And that's the level of compliance they wanted to achieve. Yeah. So, you know, it's not that it's not that they would come in as a psyop, but that's sort of they wanted to establish that level of compliance. I remember hearing about um, waterboarding and uh, detractors or critics of the um, torture program would uh, would remind the uh, White House that in uh, in Vietnam and in Korea, when American POWs were captured, they were waterboarded. And I'm wondering if I'm just off the top of my head, I'm just sort of curious. 
There have been a case where an American citizen since 9-11 has been tortured by another state that we know of? Um, you know, in terms of American citizens, I mean, obviously we've had, um, we've had some of the journalists who've been very sadly uh, kidnapped and I think tortured and then killed by, by ISIS, um, mm -hmm. which is horrific. And, and some of them, of course, were put in orange jumpsuits as sort of symbolic of what we had done at Guantanamo. Not that, of course, that it's justified, but but it is it is a cause and effect in a way, right? I mean that they're they're able to use Guantanamo as that sort of symbol. Um, and you know, did we threaten or do we threaten to prosecute people for torturing U.S. citizens in that way? Of course, we do all yeah. the time. Um, and so, you know, that's where you get to really the heart of this, which is it had it cannot be said enough. The racism that underpins Guantanamo and the black sites and most of our post 9-11 policies, um, the fact that it is OK to round up nearly 800 Muslims, most of whom had nothing to do with 9-11 or even fighting in Afghanistan against the United States, because really no one is going to dig too hard into, you know, what each one of their cases are and you insulate them enough from the law at Guantanamo um, and you've covered yourself. It just seems odd. And also, like, I never really understood the political reasoning for just wanting a conviction and not even caring if that person was guilty or not. But, but when I found out that, like, you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of these men were rounded up by Afghan warlords and just <laughs> and sold to the American government. I'm just like, is anyone not wondering if these people are innocent? In fact, yes, early on, and very few people know this, but it was reported in one place in the LA Times in the fall of 2002, contemporaneously, that General Dunleavy, who at that time was uh, handling operations at Guantanamo, went to Afghanistan, made a surprise trip to say, guys, stop sending me people who have nothing to do with the mission, who have, who have nothing to do with 9-11. Um, it, it's not useful. We're just collecting people here at Guantanamo. And, you know, no one listened to him then because we did not have the people on the ground in Afghanistan to be able to conduct the sort of um, analysis that we needed to. So the policy on the ground was just send them all over, send them all to Gitmo, we'll sort them out there. And it wasn't just Afghan warlords. Pervez Musharraf, right, the former president who just passed away recently, wrote in his book about kind of bragging about how much money he had made and the state of Pakistan had made from bounties. Yeah, and it must have been a lot. Have you, have you been to Gitmo? I've, so I go to Gitmo about every six weeks. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, I go to Gitmo and constantly. Can you describe the first time that you went there and how it felt and what you saw? Yeah, um, I first, so there are two different, actually two kind of different stories that I'll try to keep short. But the first, I first went to Gitmo actually in 2012 as um, as an observer at the time, I was not representing detainees. I was writing, I was in the middle of writing a report for the Constitution Project, an NGO here in DC on detention operations. And I okay. was writing the Gitmo chapter. I was helping write the Gitmo chapter. And so I came on sort of a, uh, a diplomatic trip visit with a few German diplomats and a couple of others who wanted to see Gitmo. Um, and I got sort of what we call the windshield tour where mm. 
you drive past, they show you a PowerPoint talking about how everything is, um, the motto at the time was safe, humane, legal, and transparent. Um, that sounds like the Patriot Act. It, it, that's exactly <laughs> it. Exactly it. Um, and then they, they, I did get to go into the facilities, the two facilities at the time, and, uh, and then they, they send you back. It's a one-day trip. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. That was the first time I went. Um, and I didn't, you know, you, it's weird, but you don't see very much. You see the gift shop and you drive by the camps and it's barbed wire. It's like like prison. Yeah. The next time I went was as detainee counsel. Um, and that was in 2013. And um, I was actually meeting with my clients. And that was eye opening because I'd never met with any of the detainees. I'd talked to former detainees before, but I, you know, it's another thing to meet someone in, in the context. Um, and the first, a uh, person I met was Imad Hassan, um, my first, one of my first clients. And he was just this very slight uh, man, very young um, Yemeni. And he came in and I know that I've, I've told this story before, but he came in wearing um, Coolio braids, right? Oh. And he just looked so funny. He'd grown his hair out and he braided them into like these braids sticking out all over the place. And he was kind of upbeat and bouncy. And he was like, oh, you know, I know my braids look so nice to meet you. My braids look funny. I know um, I'm just trying to make my mother laugh when I'm on video calls with her. And he, he says that and it's like a light switch flips and he starts crying. Um, and he was like, I'm sorry, like I, I miss my mother, right? And it was just, yeah. um, you know, what do you do? You sat, wait, you know, talk to him a little more. And he eventually did get out. Um, and I'm very happy that he did. But uh, there's still 32 down there who have the same emotion, the same, um, the same loss. Up here in Canada, our most famous inmate was Omar Cotter. Yeah. And, and how... I I was wondering, um, how familiar are you with that case? And were there any other inmates that were that young? I think he was the Omar, youngest. But... Omar was the youngest. Omar was the youngest. I am I am pretty familiar with his case. A lot, of, as you can probably imagine, a lot of the Guantanamo cases draw on each other. Um, mm -hmm. I am familiar. I've not spoken to Omar, um, but we all, all of the lawyers sort of know each other. Um, and no, that was a horrific case, right? I mean, he was so young um, and he was abused so terribly in U.S. custody. And then to go through kind of the ordeal that he went through um, at Guantanamo is just really unconscionable. I also thought uh, a key thing about the Omar Cotter case was the changed testimony um, from the American soldier that said that he was under a pile of rubble when they found him and that he couldn't have thrown that aid. And I remember thinking, even if he did, <laughs> because, and I'm, I'm laughing right now, but, but 
I feel like if he was picked up in the Congo, he'd be a child soldier and he'd be sent to rehabilitate. He'd probably do a speaking tour in universities or something. Right. But if this was, but this was, he was caught in Afghanistan oh, and he was with Al-Qaeda members. And so, and so no, you're not a soldier. And did they really just break it down to like, he wasn't wearing a uniform? Yeah. Is that really like all it takes to not be a child in the international, in the eyes of America? And then I'm sure the community has a different take on that. I think, I think it's, I, I don't think it's so much. You know, that's all it takes. I think it's in this context where the U.S., at a time where the U.S. was facing virtually no opposition in what we were doing mm. in Afghanistan. Because, again, we told everybody we're going to be in and out, no worries, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, in that particular situation, knowing very few people were going to push back, certainly the Taliban was not going to in a position to push back. And we were conflating the Taliban with al-Qaeda at that time, which was an enormous mm. mistake for everyone yeah. concerned. Um we could do whatever we wanted to, you know, a situation would be different if we were intervening perhaps in Mali on, you know, would the, the French consider their territory and, you know, yeah. trying to draw those same lines there. Like, I don't know, maybe the French, uh, I, I work on a case involving Mali at the moment. That's why, but like, you know, I mean, not that people wouldn't, I think people probably will take our example from now on in doing that. But at that time, in that moment, we took advantage of the fact that there was going to be a little pushback. Yeah. Um, from bad news to better news, this just broke. So we have breaking news here. U.S. sends home brothers held for nearly 20 years at Guantanamo Bay. The latest release of two Pakistanis never charged with a crime reduced their detainee population of the once sprawling prison complex to 32. Tell me a little bit about that, because they, you told me about that before we went on air. And it's nice to break news. But uh, I, what, what, what's the backstory? Of course. Um, I used to represent the Rabani brothers. I was a member of a team from Reprieve, um, which is a UK-based human rights organization that, that represented the Rabanis. Um, I spent some time with Ahmad um, Rabani of, you know, between 2013 and 2015. And in fact, I, I had a story that I actually just tweeted about, about how when the SS, the Senate Intel report came out about CIA torture, and we were all kind of thumbing through the executive summary, which was released, um, the one of the first things that caught my eye was Emma Durbani's name and the fact that he was in CIA custody and held at the black sites and tortured because the CIA thought he was Hassan Ghul, uh, somebody completely different. And so I had to call him. I called him the next day um, at Guantanamo and I said, look, I, I have to tell you something. Um, you know, and I and I told him and there was just he'd been on a hunger strike at this point for two years. He was he was so frail. He was so frail. And I went to see him like a week later and he was just just tiny. Um, and I will say he's been on a continuous hunger strike for I think ever since. So something like what, eight, nine years now. Wow. Um, and I just remember sitting across from him and, and hearing him on the other or hearing him on the other side of the phone first. And he just said. You mean they thought I was someone else? Like they thought, like all of this because they thought they thought I was someone else. Um, and I didn't know what to say to him. You know, um, I went down to see him the next week, and he was just like, "Well, um, clearly, I'm still on hunger strike." <laughs> and, yeah. You know what? what you, you so you uh, the, see, this is the weird thing about all of this is that how come they in the first interrogation he wasn't like, "Oh, wait a second, you." I'm not that person. Like, did did they not ever say his name or or who they thought he was? But 
they all they their oper the operating principle of whoever CIA or military <coughs> was that these guys are lying from the moment they get into your hands. They're hmm. all terrorists. They're all using you know these um, these principles that they've been trained on, and so they're lying from the get go. And that assumption means that everyone you're taking into custody you know, you're taking into custody with some reasonable system, right? Which was not the case. I mean, it's like Imad, like Imad got, you know, was taken into custody, sold for bounty. And they ask him, you know, do you know Al-Qaeda? And the first thing he says is, yeah, because Al-Qaeda just, you know, in Arabic just means the base. And he actually did. He was from a village called Al-Qaeda. Wow. Um, you know, so he says that and he's, wait, 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 I don't, I'm not, I'm not Al-Qaeda, like not those guys. I don't know those guys. I've never been to a training camp, but it didn't matter because whatever they were saying, if they weren't agreeing with their interrogators, they were lying. Yeah. It's, it's so murky. Um, did, when you were in law school, did you, is this what you were always planning to do? Cause it seems like a very high stress job. <laughs> <laughs> so it is very high stress. Yeah. Um, I, I was always, I was, I always wanted to work kind of at the juncture of human rights and humanitarian law. Um, mm. so, you know, I always thought that was interesting because they're two different sets of law, but that intersects so closely when, when you're in a conflict situation. And, um, so I always thought that was super interesting. I wanted to work on, on war crimes, prosecutions and trials and things like that. Um, you know, and then this sort of national security thing unfolded post nine 11. And I just found myself sort of just with a passing interest initially in Guantanamo issues, I worked sort of here and there on some of the early cases when I was in private practice. I remember going into my partner's office when I was uh, working at a firm in New York and, you know, right after Obama was elected and saying, oh, thank goodness, he, he said he's going to close Gitmo, like Gitmo, you know, because this was a thing that was like way, I was like, this is like antithetical to the laws of war, right? Um, and then of course we know how that turned out. But I just sort of fell down, you know, this rabbit hole of I'm here in D.C. This is, you know, NATSEC is the game, but it, we are playing it so badly. Yeah. I want to play another clip um, and, and we'll, we'll talk when we come back. By the way, I, I really enjoyed my um, Alka Perdon uh, rabbit hole, I, 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 the deep dive that I did. It was very educational for someone like me who is a college dropout to listen to somebody speak so eloquently about rights of other people. And so, um, but we'll, we'll watch this clip and then we'll come back. When individuals speak out of fear, those statements are voluntary. And if they're not voluntary, then they cannot be reliable. And I've seen this at, in my work at Guantanamo Bay, there is this idea that, well, if I didn't torture them, someone else tortured them and I didn't do it and I'm torturing them while I'm asking them questions, then what they're saying to me must still must be voluntary, must be true. And that is false. Once someone is tortured, it is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to remove the fear associated with that torture. I think the strength of the Mendes principles is that they're practical. They are essentially an A to Z guide for simple steps that can be taken at every juncture in the justice system, starting with the investigation process. And the Mendez principles offer really, really good practical advice for the safeguards you can put in place to make sure that additional coercion does not happen. 
one of the things that went that uh, popped in my mind when I watched that earlier today was this um, this sort of question, this nagging question that I had about whether or not there have ever been either interrogators or doctors or just witnesses to um, someone being tortured. If they have ever, has there been any whistleblowers on, in that contact? So yes, um, you know. Because we don't hear about them. We, you don't hear about them. Um, and, yeah. and you really should, you know, there have been people, um, you know, just in the Guantanamo context, for example, right? There were people at the DOD who figured out what was going on. One of them was a gentleman named Alberto Mora, um, who was general counsel of the Navy at that time. And um, he was one of the initial, he heard these reports of what was going on at Guantanamo and went sort of straight to the top, went to David Addington, went to um, other you know, administration officials and who worked at the vice president's office and said, this is unacceptable. What are we doing? We need to do something, you know, and he thought it was a mistake, right? Like mm -hmm. clearly something's gone wrong at Guantanamo. And he learned very quickly um, that in fact, nothing had gone wrong. This was all the plan. Uh, and in fact, he was the odd man out. Uh, and to his credit, he stayed and wrote and, you know, tried to be the voice uh, inside and later outside who talked about how early this had started and how pervasive it was. And another, another gentleman who was involved in some of the early interrogations at Guantanamo is a gentleman named Mark Fallon, um, who has who also has written a book um and uh and he was an early whistleblower about like look like cia's down here you know i i think i think this is happening in the wrong way i think you know i don't think that these techniques are effective and i would know having being an you know an intelligence and interviewing expert um there are people like that uh even even from the black sites we know of you know, we know of people whose names are, you know, not public, um, in part because they worked for the agency at that time, um, who did speak up and who did say, I can't be part of this anymore. Um, it just was never enough because the orders were coming from the White House. It was never enough to overcome this idea of what are you talking about? We are patriots. This is what we do. Can, can I ask you how you're doing in, in the sense that when you have clients that have been through so much, is there a sort of like a, a transference or an osmosis of trauma that you sometimes feel just by listening to their stories? Um, wow. <laughs> That's a very insightful question. Um, thank you for asking. Not to sound like Meghan Markle, but thank you for asking. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I even should. I didn't know if if it was impolite to be no, honest. Not, no, not at all. It's it's such an interesting question and it's something that I talk about with my colleagues often. Um, we have vicarious trauma trainings uh, and we are encouraged to talk at least amongst ourselves about how this stuff affects us because it, it honestly does. Um, there is, you know, the, the term is vicarious trauma and the way I describe it, and I've told Amar this, is sometimes when you're sitting in the room with him and as I just described, you know, you you're watching him relive his torture or you see an effect, something trigger um, a reaction from him that you know is, is because of his torture, even if it's not directly tied to something. Um, it feels sometimes like you walk out of the room with your, his blood all over you, you know, and I don't know how else to describe it. And you, you literally feel like you're walking out of the meeting room with his blood all over you. And it takes so long to get out of that mindset um 
And sometimes it is, you know, like I often say, like, I'm just always angry. I'm always angry. There's always something to just. Be so you're married. No, I am. Right. <laughs> I am. Yes, I am. You, um, an incredible, very, very, very supportive, very patient uh, person who understands, um, mm. you know, some of this. But um, but yeah, it is. It is. It eats at you. You know, it's the kind of thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night, you know, where you're thinking, well, what if you're either angry about something that like somebody has done or you, well, what if I did this? Well, what if I tried this? What if I tweet this? Right. Um, yeah. All the time, all the time. Well, I, I think, um, I think you're kind of a hero and, and, and you know what I really like about um, when reading up about you and I could be totally wrong about this, but we're so polarized now, you know, and, and I, I didn't see a lot of like people hacking you for being a bleeding heart or whatever. It feels like, and I might be going out of line here, but that that sort of mid-level, um, you know, the 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 soft left and the soft right and, and centrists and moderates can all probably agree that that whole enhanced interrogation techniques did not do America any good. It destroyed the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, before we go, actually, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the drone strikes again, just, just because I wasn't sure. I, I thought maybe uh, that deserved a little bit more air. And um, can you kind of run down for my audience um, the types of um, clients that you've had or the types of stories that you've heard that just sort of like, uh, you know, tie a bow around how heinous that program really can be? Absolutely. Um, and the hypocrisy, right, yeah. that, that comes from us. So two of the clients I represented, um, one was a family from Pakistan whose um, it was it was a father and his children and the, the grandmother, his mother, had been killed uh, by a drone while standing in her field with her grandchildren. Several of the grandchildren were injured, um, some pretty seriously at the time. These are these are children. Um, in the border areas in Pakistan. And it it scarred them. We brought them to Washington um, to meet with people on the Hill, right, to try and meet with lawmakers. You know how many lawmakers came to the briefing we held? A lot of press came, lots of press. Three. Four. Three, yeah. three representatives came, showed up to this briefing. What year was this? This was in 20, uh, 2013, 2013. So Al Franken and who? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to, I, I think, um, I'd have to, I'd have to go back and it's see. Okay. I think it's okay. Yeah. Progress. But, yeah. um, but yeah, no, three, I remember three And and I was sitting with, um, this little girl, she was 12 or 13. Her older brother was there and her, she, she was too shy to speak. And actually she barely spoke. Her father mm -hmm. had told me since she'd seen her grandmother mm -hmm. in the field and her brother spoke, gave a statement about how he cannot leave the house or he doesn't like to leave the house on days when it's sunny because on oh, those man. are the days when the drones fly. Um, so he prefers rainy days or, you know, or just at night when the drones don't fly. And that's like, as a child to inflict that kind of trauma on a generation of children seems to me, even in the most heartless analysis possible to be just the antithetical to national security considerations, right? Leaving aside the human rights issues. The, um, the other case that I worked on very closely was the case of Faisal bin Ali Jabbar, who, um, his brother-in-law, who was an anti-Al-Qaeda imam 
in Yemen, the kind of person who we would have wanted to partner with, uh, is killed in a drone strike mistakenly, right? Because we make mistakes all the time with these drones. Yeah. Um, in Yemen, and it was during his nephew's wedding. And, you know, we brought Faisal came as well. And he's just, he, we're taking him around Congress and he's telling his story over and over. And you can see, again, you can see that trauma in him. He's telling the story of, you know, the day his brother-in-law died over and over and over and over again. And he cannot, um, you know, and I can tell you this now, we met with, uh, with senior White House officials uh, in a in a meeting that was at the time supposed to be, you know, completely off the record, completely, you know, nobody was supposed to talk about it um, at that time, and we didn't. But we met with senior White House officials who were like, we're just in listening mode, and then they listened to him tell his story again. And you know what happened about sick? All he wanted, he didn't want money, he didn't want a court case, he didn't want anything. All he wanted was an acknowledgement that his brother-in-law was killed by mistake. He did not want his family being called Al-Qaeda or being known as the family who the US targeted. That's all he wanted. And instead, um, a bag of money showed up on his doorstep one day. Like um, an actual bag of money? Actual bag of money. Did it money. have a dollar sign on it, like in Bugs Bunny? Like <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> but it was literally just a bag of money, man. And, and and it was so offensive. It's like who you know? Do you? It's so dehumanizing and so offensive that you know this man has come. He's made noise here in the United States, and let's just toss a bag of money at him. Maybe he'll be quiet. Just to as a counterpoint, right? When the two Western individuals, one American and one Italian, were killed by mistake by in a drone strike in Pakistan. Right. Is that uh, Anwar Al-Balaki? The, the no, Abdul? no, these were two white Western men who had been mm -hmm. held hostage um, in Pakistan. Uh, they'd been kidnapped some time prior. And so a U.S. drone uh, targeted the house they were being held in and killed them by mistake. Right. It was a complete mistake. It was like the mistake yeah. that killed Faisal's brother-in-law. Right. Um, but the fact that it was, I'm sorry, the fact that it was a white American and a white Italian made all the difference. Obama, like within it, like a couple of hours of this news breaking, gave a speech in the Rose Garden in which he talked about the horrific mistake that had been made, the amends that would be made to the families of these two men. It's so and dehumanizing. I, it's, it's so dehumanizing. Yeah. It's so dehumanizing. And for, you know, for, for that president in particular who ran on, look, we can't have double standards. Look, we have to combine human rights and national security or we're not going to have national security. For someone like that to, to, to do that was just, in my mind, um, one of the most hypocritical moments I've ever witnessed. Did they get rid of the whole metadata targeting thing? Because that... that was the root cause of these mistakes, was it not? Like the, the signature strikes. Um, yeah. Well, not to my knowledge. Um, because you know, the grandmother in the field, like, she could have just had her nephew or her brother's or whatever cell phone, right? And they and that's why they targeted her. I don't know if that's the case, but like that was the case for a lot of them, I think. A lot of them. It was, you know, military age males uh, in a group carrying weapons, right? I mean, by that token, you could target, you know, a frat house in Texas, but that's how the journalists in Iraq got killed because exactly. they were carrying cameras and, you know, the exactly. cowboys in the sky who really wanted to pull that trigger, you know, exactly. And you know, that part of the world, everyone's got weapons. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, don't 
you know, look for intelligence. Don't look for people who may be, you know, working against U.S. interests. But to work on that kind of signature yeah. um, makes zero sense. It's just it's it's almost, you know, I'm cynical, but it's, it's almost just a way of saying, look, we're doing something. We're doing something and we're doing it to people who don't matter to you. So it we're keeping up appearances. Um, this will be the last question. It's, a, it's sort of a twofold question. But what do <clears throat> excuse me, what do American government or what do world governments have to do um, in order to, to sort of uh, flip the script in a sense that where, uh, you know, these types of things just stop happening or at least justice is easy is, is more easily accessed. And then what, if anything, can regular people do to sort of fight the same type of fight that you're fighting? We have to be more invested in truth, in truth telling, right? Not just, um, and, and I think this is, you know, this is something that's translatable even from, um, from our own domestic criminal systems, right? We're so focused on convictions and putting people in prison. And I'm not saying, you know, that's not, that there's not maybe a time and place for some of that, but there's really very little interest in actually figuring out the truth, right? And there's very little interest, in, I find, on the part of the American public and a lot of countries in knowing what is being done in your name to this day, right? President Obama said, we're going to look forward. We're not going to look backwards. There has been no accountability whatsoever, even in the form of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the CIA torture program. And there is still more than, I would, I would put it at somewhere upwards of 75% of the program is still classified. People still don't know the extent of what happened in that program. Um, so that's, you know, we need, we need to be more interested in finding out what actually happened. Um, and that's mm -hmm. going to involve a lot of declassification and a lot of holding officials accountable, not in terms of prosecution. I'm not saying go prosecute George Bush, although I do think he should be prosecuted. Um, that, that's yeah. not what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is give it whatever, give him immunity, whatever you want. Like, but let's find out what the real story was. So that Al Capron, thank, thank you very. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it does answer the question. But um I, I just want to, I, I feel like I just want to thank you over and over again for the work that you do, but I'll just keep it short and just, and, and thank you um, um, for your time today. I would love to have you back because I, I think that, um, that talking about this might be one of the first steps for getting uh, regular people to be like, you know what, I'm going to write a letter to my representative or something, you know, something that can like, even if it doesn't make a difference, we'll be thinking about it a little bit more. So I applaud you for the work that you do and thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. Alka Pradhan, she, what a warrior. Um, again, it's, to do what she does is must be one of the most difficult jobs. Uh, she was talking about uh, vicarious trauma. Um, that was going to be my first question, but I, wanted, I, I felt it out a little bit and wanted to wait, but uh, I actually wasn't surprised by her answer. You know, um, and I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's just something that I think that we need to talk about a little bit more uh especially americans you know let's be honest canada you know we might be complicit in the sense that we stand there and uh try to look when we have a military of eight guys but, you know at the end of the day i think that to be said um for the type of work that uh, that she does i think it's courageous and uh and i also think um it's worth it's worth covering more so uh, i'm gonna have her back because i think uh it's it's worth talking to now listen um the next <laughs> 10 days on are kind of insane. So I'm going to just open up my calendar and go through this with you so you 
you guys uh, understand what's happening here. Tomorrow night, doubleheader. We have Julie Black to talk about the anthem thing. She was going to be on Wednesday, but now she's on on Friday. She's going to talk about uh, changing that one word, no Canada, and how it drove every idiot with a pickup truck and a flag on it um, in this country uh, completely bananas. Uh, and then at 9 p.m., we have Casual Friday, a uh, bunch of people coming in for that one. On Monday, February 27th, we have one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time. He's produced for Eminem. He's produced for KRS-One, Fat Joe. His name is Domingo, so we have him at 8 o'clock. At 10 p.m., we have uh, Convoy Leader, Tom Marazzo. I have never spoken with him before, at least not in this type of context. I've just messaged him a little bit back and forth. That should be an interesting interesting show. On Tuesday, another doubleheader. Oh, yeah, another doubleheader. We have, at 7 p.m., we have Classified. He's been on the show once before. He's a Nova Scotia rapper who got back from his retrospective tour. And uh, and I'm sure he has a lot of cool things to say about that. I missed the show in Ottawa, but uh, I'd like to go the next time he rolls into town. And then at 8 p.m., we have Scott Trades from the Hot Wallet podcast here on Cryer.co and Cryer Media. On Wednesday, March 1st, we have John Spencer. He's the dude that wrote the manual for the Ukrainian uh, civilian army. He wrote the handbook that the Ukrainian military bought like 100,000 copies to give out to their civilian soldiers. Uh, He's been on the show a few times, so that'll be fun. On Thursday, we have a punk rock birder named Paul Riss. Paul Riss is actually my ex-brother-in-law. One of the most interesting cats I've ever known. He's a really good artist, and he really likes birds, and he looks like a punk rock lead singer. It's dope. You're not going to want to miss that. And then next Friday, we have Casual Friday. So it's literally like the fullest. I have 10 podcasts in six days or something like that, but I, I can't wait. Um, I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed it. There was I didn't see too many people in the chat today, but that's okay. Um, sometimes the worthwhile interviews... Don't seem that interesting on paper, but hopefully we can get a lot of people watching it. Uh, you know, when uh, when when it comes out uh, tomorrow on Apple and Spotify. So, um, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm supposed to tell you to hit like and share. Do what you want, and we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Do, did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. 
Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. <laughs>